Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Renew Your Mind podcast. I'm your host, Kieran Lenahan. I'm a business and mindset coach for faith-driven entrepreneurs, but today we are not talking about business. So if you are brand new to the podcast and came here for entrepreneurship-related content, really sorry about the timing, but the beautiful thing is every other episode before this is about entrepreneurship. It's available to you. I'd actually recommend going back Um, And if you are brand, brand new, going back and listening to at least episodes zero through three and then kind of catching up to the present day, that will help you get the most out of this podcast on an ongoing basis. But for everyone else who has been tracking for at least some time with us, you know that last Wednesday, my wife, Dana, who's here with me today, I'll introduce in a second, uh, my wife and I officially adopted our son, Christopher, out of the foster care system and It has been such a joy over the past week to just kind of sit in that and sit in gratitude. But today, we wanted to use the time to share a bit of our story in foster care so far, and then to answer questions that you all submitted about the world of foster care and adoption. And so I want to preface this all by saying this isn't trying to convince you to become a foster parent. As we will discuss, this is not for everyone, and we don't believe that everybody is called to this. It's just something that we know that people have questions about, that people are curious about. There's some confusion out there about the differences between all of the different ways you could go about it. And I know that there are some of you out there for a fact who have told me um, that you are considering becoming foster or adoptive parents in the near future or the distant future. And so with that, here's our agenda, and then I'll introduce Dana and we will get into it. First, we just want to share a little bit of our story at a high level, how we got into this and what it's been like so far. Then we'll get into just the Q&A and just answer the questions that you all submitted. We had some really, really good, some really, really hard questions that we'd love to get to. Then we'll wrap up with a semi-comedic but actually kind of serious what not to say to a foster parent segment. So that's the plan. Share the story at a high level, Q&A, and then what not to say. And so with that, I would love to introduce you for the first time ever on the podcast to my beautiful wife, Dana Lenahan. Hi, everybody. <laughs> cool. So uh, bear with us. We are using one microphone for this, and so we're, we're going to be tapping in and out as we go. But uh, first, let's just get into our story a little bit. People typically ask us when they find out that we are foster parents, they ask us why we became foster parents how that happened. And so would love to, to kind of open up. So I think the first thing before we even had any very specific uh, promptings to go into foster care, Dana and I both separately kind of as we were growing up, we both uh, loved either working with children or have a background just working with children. And we'd always both had a sense that adoption for whatever reason was just on our radar at some point. That was something that we were open to and interested in doing. And so that heading into our relationship together, but then as uh, we matured in our relationship and as uh, we got plugged into our local church, we had really good friends of ours who became foster parents. And so we got to watch them walk through the process of becoming licensed, uh, the process of them bringing in their first placement, and then that, uh, that child being reunified with family. And we kind of felt some of the weight and some of the emotion Um, just because they were really good friends of ours. And we really got to see up close and personal what it looked like. And we just felt, uh, we felt certainly pulled to it. And then we we had one very specific uh, 
experience that Dana will will talk about here in a second that really kind of sealed the deal and gave us that final push. Yeah. So at the local church that we became a part of, there was a guest speaker who was talking about uh, foster care and adoption and kind of in the broader sense, talking about adoption into the family of God. And um, he is also a foster parent. So we did talk about the real life. Um, well, not, <laughs> I don't want to say real life. Um, he talked about, uh, you know, in today's world, foster care, as he is a foster parent and adopted three children, a sibling group out of the foster care system. And in that sermon, he mentioned that if you felt any nudging or any sense of this is where, you know, the Lord is leading you to lean into it rather than away from it. And at that very moment, both Kieran and I separately had the thought, what if we fostered before we became biological parents? And we both also had the thought, wow, no, that's really crazy. I'm not even going to tell the other one about it. So you know, usually on the rides home, we would talk about what we thought of church and all of those types of things. And this car ride was a little bit quiet. Um, but then someone brought up, you know, what did you think about what he said? And I think I mentioned, you know, that I had kind of heard this nudging, not necessarily the audible voice of God, but just my thought was, what if we became foster parents before we had our own biological children? And Kieran told me that he had the same Thought so for me that kind of sealed the deal because I felt like that was our um, our sign. Uh, and then one of my favorite songs came on the radio, and I was pretty much in. Kieran was like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! <laughs> we need to think about this. We need to pray about this. We need to look at this logistically, all that kind of stuff." But um, you know, a couple of months later, we finally did make the decision that we were going to become foster parents, and um, we were thinking about timing of that, uh, knowing that it could take six months to a year, depending on how much effort you put in, which we will talk about in terms of the process a little bit later. But um, And I'll interject here just for a, a quick second. It gives you a little bit of insight as Dana's talking through that story into our relationship. She was very much, uh, as soon as she realized that we had both kind of heard the same voice in our head and and then her favorite song played on the radio, she was in. And I distinctly remember she was like, yep, I'm in. We're doing this. And I was like, hold up. Let's, I'm the thinker, like, let's think through the process. I want to, I want to think about all of the different ramifications of it and things like that. But I did sense in my heart that this was something that we were going to do. And eventually it took me, what, maybe a week or a couple days to kind of get to that place on my own where I felt the conviction to say, yep, uh, this is a direction we feel like God is calling us into. And and so let's obey and, and step into it. And in terms of timing, we both had just talked through and felt like we were in a position where we were able to do it. We had the time, we had the home to be able to do it. We have the space. And we also had a really incredible support system. Both of our families live within 30 minutes of where we are. And so it wouldn't just be us in it. We had friends who were foster parents. We had grandparents uh, who would be there to support us. And so we just felt like we were in a really great position to step into the foster care system. Now, Dana can share a little bit about what that process was like for us to become foster parents. Yeah. So like I said, once we made that decision, we kind of talked about timing. Kieran mentioned that. Um, so we decided in 2018 that we were going to become foster parents. Um, and we took 
an info session class with a nonprofit organization local to us called Miriam's Heart that supports foster and adoptive families. And it essentially was just, you know, a panel of people who have done the broad list of <laughs> have have taken care of kids and taken them in or adopted them in any way that you can think of. Um, and we could just ask them questions and they gave us information. So that was really helpful at the end of 2018. And in 2019, we decided to start the lot, the licensing process. So what that looks like, I'll try to be brief with it, is essentially, in, well, this is specific to New Jersey. It might look different in different states, but. Yeah, sorry. And Dana just reminded me, everything that we're talking about today is from our personal experiences. And so uh, obviously we live in New Jersey. We became foster parents in New Jersey. There are differences by state. Some of that we'll get into in the Q&A. Um, but I just want to preface it, take everything that you hear with some kind of grain of salt, because our experience doesn't necessarily mean that this will be your experience. If this is something that you decide uh, to do, as you talk to foster parents, you will learn that everybody's story, everybody's journey in it is different. And so I just wanted to, Dan, I'm glad that you said that because, uh, I just want you all to know New Jersey is different than some other states um, because of some experiences that New Jersey foster care has had and things like that. And so there there are some things that are more strict here, some things. It's just going to depend on the state that you're in and how they approach foster care. And so just keep that in mind as you listen and as you go about uh, learning more about what it could look like in your state. Yeah, you're welcome for saying that. Um, so in New Jersey, uh, you have to take um, just like this intro class through the division. So um, we have what's called the Division of Child Protection and Permanency. And <clears throat> it's not DIFUS anymore, which used to be the Division of Youth and Family Services. Um, I don't know. I think part of the reason they changed it was really just the terrible connotations people had with it. So now it is DCPMP, which is um, Division of Child Protection and Permanency. So we went to this one class and essentially they did similar, something similar to what Miriam's Heart did, which was just a really, you know, fire hose of information about kind of the big picture things in foster care. And after that, they asked you to fill out a form to say, I still want to become either a foster parent, a foster parent with the willingness to adopt, which we'll get into, or just an adoptive parent. Um, and after that, someone would contact us to start the licensing process. So we did that. We filled out the form. Um, we were contacted by the licensing agency, and we were assigned a caseworker, I believe, at that time. So that caseworker was specifically for our family. And we did fingerprints, background checks. We They had to come to our home. We did a really extensive questionnaire talking really in depth about different parts of your life, people in your life, experiences you've had, how they've affected you, all of those types of things. Um, they interviewed us separately, and then they interviewed us together, and they reviewed the paperwork, and we had to go back and do it twice. They did a home inspection. Um yeah, like I said, background checks. So <clears throat> it's very extensive. And when they talked to us, uh, when they came to our house a couple of times, they said, you know, expect that we'll be open in cabinets. You know, there's really no secrets in foster care, which for us, we appreciate because there shouldn't be any secrets. We have nothing to hide. And the reason they do that is to keep kids safe in other homes. So while it can be kind of frustrating and feel a little invasive, the purpose of it is to keep children safe. So we went through that whole process. We started in April, I believe. 
sometime around then, and we got licensed in September. So that was about five months. Um, it took us about five months because we were really on top of it because we were ready to start taking kids into our home. It can take longer than that. You can kind of take as much time as you need. It just depends on how fast you process that paperwork. And then, of course, how fast your caseworker brings it back to you, uh, which can vary. <laughs> so um, we were licensed in 2019, of September of 2019. Um, I want to give a shout out to one of our best friends, um, Brittany, who hosted a foster baby shower because we were becoming parents in an unconventional way. And she felt like we should have some kind of party. So um, they had a little gathering for us, which was awesome. Uh, so if you have friends who are becoming foster parents, you can support them in that way. It was nice. We Everyone came around us. They prayed for us. That was a really awesome, awesome day. So getting licensed in September of 2019, after that, we waited and we got some calls and we said yes to some calls. Um, I believe we said yes to three calls. Kieran can correct me if I'm wrong. Yes, I believe. I think it was three. And so just to clarify, like when we say we receive calls, basically once you are licensed, your home is approved. You as a family are approved to take in a foster child. You will just get a phone call at any point in time during the day, during the night when uh, the state has a placement that they're looking for a home for. And so we got three calls and they said, hey, we have this child. Um, would you be willing to take them into your home? And so we said yes to three separate calls. And then for whatever reason, a number of different reasons within the next 24 hours, they would call us back and say, hey, here's what happened. Um, we no longer need you to be a home for them and to provide a home for them. We found, I think the most common thing was they had found a biological family member, like an aunt or an uncle or a, a grandparent. And so uh, it was kind of a, a weird emotional experience for us because we we're excited to like become parents and actually have our first placement and first child placed with us. And I remember one of them, I think we even like learned the name of, of the child and we just start, you know, you start imagining things and then eventually, you know, things fell through. They, they found a family member, which is awesome. Um, in many ways, that is the goal of foster care is to keep children with their families, whether it's biological parents or aunts and uncles and extended family. And so um, at that point, I'm guessing that you want to pick that back up. So after three calls, we said yes, they ended up not coming to our home, we got a fourth call. Yeah, that was in December. But I do want to backtrack for one second because Kieran mentioned that you can get a call sometime during the day and in the night. And I actually don't know that that's necessarily true. If you're a regular <laughs> licensed... Oh, that's right. Yes. If, yes. Yeah, yeah. if you are a um, just a regular licensed home that you are a foster or a foster to adopt home, they will call you during normal hours. <laughs> um, if you opt to be an emergency placement, they may call you on holidays, weekends, in the middle of the night. Emergency placements are where they've removed children from their homes and it had to be immediately, so it might be in the middle of the night or during non-working hours, and they need a place for those kids to sleep. So there are some people who are emergency placements. At the time, we were not, so we only got calls during the day. <laughs> Thank you for showing up on the podcast and calling me out. No, that's totally right. Um <laughs> And that also, like in all seriousness, that is a uh, a really important thing. And there's always a need for that because if you can imagine what's actually happening here, like we're talking about things a little bit abstractly, 
a child gets removed from the home because something is so urgent that the child needs to be removed immediately. And the options are they get placed in an emergency home or they get placed in or they don't get placed and they just sleep in the office of the caseworker and things like that. And it's if you think about just putting yourself in the position of a child, that is like the removal itself is traumatic. So like there's already trauma. The reason that the removal had to happen means that there's trauma. There's, there are just bad things happening. And so um, you don't, ideally you don't want to add to that by having kids sleep on the floor of an office or in a, a, a sofa a in somebody's office. Yeah. Um, having a home to come to, uh, even if you don't know the people, having a home is, is something that's really important. And so Thank you for lovingly calling me out on that. No, of course. I'm always here for that. So in December of 2019, we got a call about a newborn. Um, and that's not very common in foster care, especially as um, new, relatively new foster parents. Our caseworker was trying to get us a placement, which is another really weird dynamic. She knows that we really want a child, but we also were not hoping that a child had to be removed which is a tricky dynamic to work through. Um, but this baby was a couple weeks old um, and he was still in the hospital and he needed a place to go when he was discharged. And so at the time, my mother had already retired, which was amazing. Shout out mom. And so she was able to provide care for this child until uh, – he was old enough to go into daycare if that's what we chose to do. Luckily, like Kieran said, we have an amazing support system and my mom was able to be grandma daycare as we like to call it. Um, but yeah, so we got that call on a Wednesday. I was at work. I work in a hospital as a speech therapist. I think Kieran might've mentioned that. And so I was actually with a client. I had to step out and, um, answer this phone call, which is pretty rude and not very professional, but whatever. (laughs) Um, So I answered that call. We said yes. And on Friday morning, we drove into Philadelphia, which is where he was to pick him up. Um, And that was Christopher. So he was three and a half weeks old when he came home. And that was the start of our journey. Well, not really the start, but that was our first, the start of our first placement. The interesting thing about Christopher's placement is Like I said, it's not very common for um, new foster parents to get an infant because that's a more common request uh, among people who are foster parents. So I will talk about that in the Q&A. Some people ask questions, but essentially you can put an age range of kids that you want. And a lot of people like to have younger children because they think there's less trauma um, and not as much baggage to have to kind of work through. So We had chosen that because we've never been parents before. So we were zero to two at the time. And the other interesting thing about Christopher is he was out of county, which is unheard of. That means that there, out of all of the foster parents in his county, no one was willing to take an infant. And like I said, that's really not very common. So not only was it an infant that couldn't be placed, he couldn't be placed in his own county and they went out of county to find a placement. So we are the next county over. Um, and so there were already kind of some stars aligning, looking back on it, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty of, you know, how he came to us, all the other placements falling through, um, him being out of county placed with us, being a newborn and us being the people that they called. So yeah, that's how we brought Christopher home. Yeah. And so that is our foster care journey in a nutshell. 
obviously there are some details that we skipped over, but if you have more specific questions even beyond what we get to in this episode, please don't hesitate to reach out directly to me or to Dana. I will tag her on Instagram promoting this episode. So before transitioning to answer the questions that you all had submitted, we wanted to take some time to actually just break down the different paths within the world of foster care and adoption, because it actually came clear in the questions that people were asking by the questions that people weren't asking that this is actually just kind of a confusing topic. And so we want to kind of break down in as simple as, as simple terms as possible what the different paths are. Uh, because I think people tend to lump a lot of these things together. And I think we probably did before we got into it. So within the world of foster care and adoption, one of the paths that we can take, I'll t- take one of them at a time. The first one is just to become foster parents only. And if that is the path that you want to choose, you can just become a foster parent, become foster parents in a foster home, take children in until the point where they can be reunified with their biological family. And if that becomes a, a path that isn't viable for that person, for that child's case, they will try to find a permanent home for that child. You do not have to be that permanent home. You don't have to be open to adoption. You can just be kind of a temporary home uh, to be able to provide love and stability for that child within that season. With that being said, sometimes children who are in that situation might be in a foster home and that foster home might have to change depending on the people who have their house open. So if someone's a foster only parent and they're choosing to close their home and their children in placement haven't been adopted yet, that child might have to move to another foster home, potentially a foster with the openness to adopt or just another foster only home until they're able to be adopted. So I just wanted to share, you know, the child might be in that placement for a long period of time. Um, It's not always going to be quick that they're adopted right away or anything like that. Um, But if you're a foster-only home, there's no obligation. You don't have to adopt them, even if they're staying in your house. Yeah. And so that would be the first kind of path, would be foster-only. Dana mentioned a term. She said uh, foster with the openness to adopt. Uh, You'll probably hear it talked about as foster to adopt. That's probably the term that's most commonly thrown around. And so that would be another path. So that would be you becoming licensed foster parents and a licensed foster home. And you would take in a placement and you would be open to the possibility of adopting, though you are not signing any papers right from the start that you will automatically adopt a foster placement. There's always the element of of choice. You get a choice in that even after having the child in your home. But the idea is that you would go in fostering, understanding that the primary goal of foster care is always primarily to reunify that child with biological family, whether it's their biological parents or extended family, especially in New Jersey. um, But I think across the board, the goal is to keep kids with family, if at all safe and if at all possible. And so this is the camp that Dana and I chose to take to become foster parents with the openness to adopting a placement if that became uh, necessary, possible, something that we wanted to do. And so that is another path. So the first path that we talked about would just be to become foster parents only. The second path would be to become foster parents with the openness to adopt 
And Dana wants to share a few words just on this language of foster to adopt. So when I told you about the overview of what it was like to become foster parents, I told you about that first um, session where they give you kind of the fire hose of information of what's involved in foster care. And they give you a form to fill out to say, are you still willing to do this? And at the top, there are the three boxes and it's foster only, foster to adopt. And then Kieran's going to talk about next is adoption. Um, so those three boxes being checked. The second one, foster to adopt. We feel like, I mean, I, I don't know if I can speak for you too, Kieran, but uh, we feel like this is very misleading information. Um, I think eventually when I have a little bit more time on my hands, I might petition to actually get it changed because there's a, a misunderstanding that foster to adopt means that you will foster children first and then you will adopt them. And that is very often not the case. I think the statistic, I don't know them specifically, but I know it's around 20% to 80%. So 20% of kids who are placed in foster homes will end up being adopted. 80% um, go back to family. Actually, I think that's the goal. Um, that's the goal of New Jersey right now. But there really aren't a lot of people or a lot of children who go into a foster home and then get adopted by that foster home in like, if let's say if it's a foster to adopt family. So if this is a way that you're trying to build your family and you're looking to adopt a child soon, foster to adopt is not actually the path that you want to take. And I'm not trying to mis like, um, you know, deter anyone from doing that, but we have friends who thought that that was kind of the case, different friends from the one we spoke of that we kind of watched them go through the process. Um, but other foster parents we met through this journey and they did foster to adopt and they were under the impression that they were going to adopt if they fostered first. And that isn't what ended up happening with their placement. And obviously that leads to a lot of heartbreak. So the expectation versus reality is really important with that language. That's why whenever I tell someone, um, when I'm talking to them about what we do and kind of our role in foster care, I say that we're foster parents with the openness to adopt because we are open to it, but we are not expecting that that's going to be the outcome. Yeah, really important distinction. And I think for people who are considering this and just thinking about what is, you know, what are the priorities that you have and what is the, like, are you looking to grow your family? Are you looking to just be a temporary home? Are you open to kind of anything, right? So Obviously, those statistics and, and the goal that Dana shared, that 80% um, goal to have children go back to families, that's New Jersey specific. So again, that would be something that might differ based on which state you're in. But I think that's just an important thing to take into account. You may be foster parents with the openness to adopt. You could do that for 20 years and like potentially, statistically, it's possible that you might never actually adopt uh, at the same time. If you were to do it for 20 years, the odds are maybe at some point that would become a possibility. So that's fostering with the openness to adopt. The next one, the one that Dana mentioned, that third kind of box on that form that you fill out after uh, the licensing or the, the foster parenting class would be adoption. And so I would, because adoption is a very broad category, I would specifically call it adoption out of the foster care system um, and other language that would describe it as for children who are quote unquote legally free, which basically means that these children have been in foster care and going back to family is no longer an option. 
That is not an option that the state is pursuing. And so they're looking to find a permanent home for these children. And for whatever reason, maybe the foster family that they're living with, they could be in that first category of people who are just looking to foster and they're not, you know, able to or looking to adopt. And so these children are in a position where they're looking for a permanent home. It's not going to be family. And so they're waiting for an adoptive family to, to step in and to provide a home for them. Um, and I'll briefly share from the, from the end or, yeah, I think towards the end of the foster care class that we took and they were explaining this, there's actually, at least for New Jersey, there's a website and this mm-hmm. is, this was one of the, probably the more emotional parts of that initial class that we took. I almost adopted a kid. <laughs> yeah. Like, so there was a, so they showed a video of just some children. And so there's a website basically uh, that lists children who are legally free, ready to be adopted. And they have little like bios and they have a video sometimes of them introducing themselves. And they ask them questions like, you know, what are you looking for? What are you most excited about in finding, you know, a forever family and a permanent home? And it's just, I mean, heartbreaking stuff. Um, and it, Dana was like, I want to adopt them all. Mm-hmm. And so how did I get into that? So straight adoption out of the foster care system. Um, this is, and we'll get into this a little bit when we talk about kind of the financial uh, implications of all of these different paths. But this is one, I'll just say for right now, this adoption is this type of adoption out of the foster care system is very different financially from international and domestic, like in the United States, private adoption. We'll get into the nuance of that in a second. So, so far we've gone through three paths, foster parents only, fostering with the openness to adopt, and then straight adoption out of the foster care system. You don't have to actually, you don't temporarily necessarily foster a child. You can just adopt a child who is ready for a permanent home. Um, so those are the first three, and then we'll get to one more. Yeah, I just wanted to add something about adoption out of the foster care system, and I think that we do go in the, into this in the Q&A, but um, most of these children are a little bit older. Um, the only children or infants who are legally free um, newborns are safe haven babies, and they say that in the state of New Jersey they get maybe one or two a year, um, and the waiting list for infants um, for adoption only through the state is very long because like I mentioned earlier, people would prefer not to have as much baggage if they're looking to adopt um, and if they're trying to go through the state. So yeah, I think it's just important to remember that adoption through foster care typically is going to be in general, an older child because they had to have gone through the process of terminating the parents' rights, looking for everyone Um, looking for other family members, other friends, anyone who was willing to take them. And if that's not an option, then they are going to be on that website, like Kieran mentioned, Um, heartbreaking stuff, but that takes time. So they're typically a little bit older. Uh, So I just wanted to share that. Yeah. And not when we, I guess when we say older, like probably seven to 16 would be like the age range about again, and that'll differ based on the state. So those are the first three options. The last one that I think this often gets very much lumped into foster care, but actually may not have anything to do with a child being in the foster care system is private adoption. And so the first three options we talked about, 
Um, for the majority of cases, there are a couple of states that have a little bit of a different approach. But the majority of states, it is the government. Uh, foster care is a government-run and funded uh, program and system. Private adoption is run through private organizations. And so the two within private adoption, the two options are domestic, if you're in the United States, and then there's international adoption. Yeah. So with domestic adoption, essentially that's just a parent who is American um, in some form and they are having a baby and there are lots of different private agencies um, that help uh, match uh, potential adoptive parents with biological mothers who are looking to place their child for adoption. Typically, it looks like them, and I only know this because I have a friend who just went through this. Um, clearly, this isn't the path that we went through, but there's a website. There's a lot of questionnaires that they fill out. Um, sometimes you're allowed to do an interview, um, and the biological mother might interview the family. Um, really, they're just looking for the best match for their child that they are planning to give up for adoption, which is very brave um, and a, you know, awesome thing. There's just a, obviously a lot of factors there, but very brave mamas and uh, very patient adoptive parents. And then there is international adoption, which, I mean, we don't know all the nuances of that, but it, essentially it's just you're adopting a child from another country. And so typically with domestic adoption, I mean, I looked up just kind of brief numbers. It says that the Statistically, the average cost uh, to adopt an infant domestically would be between $20,000 and $40,000. And then for international adoption, it can range from $25,000 to $50,000. Um, and I'm not sure if that's just the cost of adoption or if that's including flights, um, if that's including medical background, all of those types of things. I would imagine that they would include that in the cost, but it's a lot more involved. And so it's clearly... Um, a lot more expensive. And for obvious reasons, the international adoption is the most expensive because you have to do all the flights, you have to get passports, there's lots of approval. I know that some countries don't even allow Americans to adopt kids right now, which um, can be kind of tricky. And, you know, you have to go through the processes in both countries, which takes a lot more time and a lot more effort and inevitably a lot more money. <laughs> yeah. And as as much as the each different state varies, I would say multiply that by at least 10 for how different countries uh, vary in terms of the way that they approach adoption. And so what I would say is, again, that that's not the path that we went down. But if you have specific questions on that or want to talk to people who have been through that, um, we know people, we have friends who have done uh, who have done international private adoption. And so and domestic and domestic. And so if you have questions about either of those paths of private adoption, uh, just let us know. We'd be happy to connect you. And just want to say there's nothing wrong. I feel like the tone of my voice was like, it's so expensive. Like, obviously, there's nothing wrong with that. It's a beautiful way to start a family. Um, and it's just there are more costs when it's done privately versus through the state. And that's that was one of the questions that came up was how much um, does it cost for us in adoption and things like that. So I just there's nothing wrong with it. It's it's a really beautiful thing. And all these families are being built in such awesome different ways. I've seen some really cool ways that people do fundraisers also to come around um, parents who are planning to adopt either domestically or internationally. So yeah. Yeah. And I guess the, the sad but also true thing is regardless of what path, if you choose any of these paths, and that's the last one that we'll, we'll talk about, um, 
there are kids that need safe homes. And so whichever path that looks like, you would be providing a safe home, a loving home, um, and that would be changing the trajectory of a child's life. And so there is no like better or worse. There's like, they're all different. Mm. Um, and so with that, uh, I'll just summarize again really briefly and then we'll get into questions. So you can become foster parents only. You can become foster parents with the openness to adopt. You also within those two, you can change your mind if you become foster parents only and then you decide you're open to adopt. You can let your casework, you can let the division know that you've changed your preference and they are happy, like they want more people willing to take children in. Uh, again, so foster only, foster with openness to adopt, straight adoption out of the foster care system, children who are legally free, and then there's private adoption, domestic and international. So by far, I think the most common question we have, we'll transition into Q&A, is around the cost. And this is, again, like it varies, but I think the one of the most common uh, kind of assumptions or ideas that people have that's not actually true is that all adoption is always expensive. Um, And so obviously in our case, we adopted Christopher through the foster care system after having been his foster parents for two and a half years. Dana, do you want to share the total number of dollars that we have spent in that process? I mean, zero. (laughs) I can't can't think of Yeah, I didn't prepare her for that question, (laughs) but... We have not spent any money. And so a couple of details on that. Again, yeah. well, of course, you spend money to like we be, a, money on, be a parent. We spent money on Christopher. <laughs> yes, yes. Obviously, we spent money. We clothed him and fed him. Um, a couple of things, though. We have never had to pay anything for health care or medical needs for him. We have never had to pay for any legal fees um, as long as we used the lawyers that the state kind of works with and has on their approved list. We didn't have to pay any money for the adoption. Um, and so we've actually, like, it was very inexpensive in terms of finances to adopt him. Of course, you provide a home and food and, and clothing. Um, that said, and states will differ on this, the state does provide a stipend that is meant to cover the expense of bringing that child in. Again, the state wants to incentivize people. They want to help people be able to provide a safe and stable home for kids. And so they do provide a stipend. Um, whether or not that truly offsets the money that you spend on food and clothing and all that, that's a different conversation. But, you know, people ask about the cost, like, isn't it like $50,000? Um, it could be for private adoption. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be that high for private adoption, but for adoption th- uh, through the foster care system, either fostering with the openness to adopt, or if you just went went in with the the goal of straight adoption, the cost is certainly less than like a couple thousand dollars. But in our case, I I mean, I think in most cases it's free. Um, to be honest, I think that even straight adoption, maybe you have to pay for your fingerprints, but I think they actually, no, you don't, you just have to go because they give you a special form and the code that they have for fingerprinting means that you don't pay for it. So, yeah. Yeah. And so I think most people don't know that, that it's free, again, free financially to you in terms of additional expenses that you would take on. Um, the stipend happens. And one thing that we didn't even know coming into this uh, after having taken Christopher in, his health care, even though we've adopted him and he is like in all, in all ways, he is our child, 
the state up until the point that he graduates high school or turns 18, the state of New Jersey whichever is... Whichever happens later. Whichever happens later, the state of New Jersey is covering his health insurance and medical expenses. And so until he's 18, we won't even have to pay for anything medical, I think, in terms of like, that's necessary, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Like yeah. The, the wellness checks, his wellness checks, any sick visits, um, anything. He has Medicaid, so... Um, almost all of it's covered. Yeah. I think all of it. Yeah. Yeah. So we've never had to pay for any doctor's appointments or anything like that. Um, and in addition, and I don't, I think this would be consistent across states. Uh, but again, check the stipend that they provided while we were taking care of him as our foster child continues to happen, uh, throughout his childhood up until 18 or graduation, whichever comes later. So, Again, we didn't even know that, and we became foster parents and had him, and then we found out when the goal of his case changed to adoption, um, and we were, we were surprised by that. And so, something to know. Yeah, and a funny story about that. When we found out that the stipend continued after he was adopted, um, Kieran's response to our caseworker was, I think I can actually put this in quotes, that seems like the biggest waste of resources. <laughs> And, you know, we had conversations um, after that about how there may be some financial reasons why people might not adopt if they didn't feel like they would be able to provide for a child um, if they didn't continue to have that stipend. So they want to incentivize permanency, hence the name of the division is Division of Child Protection and Permanency. They're looking for permanency for these kids. So if the reason that someone might not adopt is because of finances, they wanted to try to mitigate that um, risk. It is my understanding. Um, Kieran still thinks for in our case, <laughs> I don't know, maybe he can talk talk about that for a second. But the point is, is that we were surprised. Um, we weren't expecting it. Um, but you know, we understand that that's something that they're doing to try to help kids stay in homes, which is the goal. Yeah, I get it. And I think that that's a smart, like, I think the heart of that is applaudable. And I think that's great. Um, I just, my personal opinion is I think they should take into account, you know, a family's income and kind of what their situation is so that people who need the help definitely get the help. And people who don't necessarily need that financial help don't need to get it, right? So that can be shared but who are elsewhere. We? Um, so I'll, I'll write a letter and, and see where that goes. So that's, I guess that's in a nutshell how we'd answer the question around how expensive is it? Again, Dana gave those figures for private adoption, domestic and international, foster care and adoption through the foster care system is free uh, to very cheap. Mm-hmm. Um, the next question that we wanted to answer, uh, this one's pretty quick is, is the adoption permanent and can the child be removed once adopted? Uh, Yes, the adoption is permanent. We will be getting a new birth certificate that has our names and his name on it. Um, And the child can be removed once they're adopted if we did something for someone to call DCPMP. So um, they don't want kids to be adopted and then be in abusive homes or neglective homes. So if you love and care for that child, no, they cannot be removed. But they can be removed if it's no longer a safe place. Um, in terms of, like, is there a chance that someone's going to take Christopher away from us? The answer is no. Thank goodness. Um, the next question is, are you assigned any random child? How does that work? We kind of talked about this in the process of what it's like. You get a call. You get a description of the child. So you might get the age. Um, they give you the gender and the race. 
and sometimes the first name. Uh, and that's pretty much it. So it is kind of any random child, <laughs> um, but you can say yes or no. And I didn't talk about this in the process of um, becoming foster parents in that whole survey, but I want to, maybe I'll touch on it here and it's going to play into the next question, I think too, is when you're filling out these forms in the process of becoming a foster or adoptive parent, there are a lot of in-depth questions about what, what type of child or what are you willing to accept into your home? And that sounds kind of weird. So let me, um, let me preface it by saying some of the best advice or some of the best in, like input we got when we were going through this process was you're going to feel like a terrible human when you're filling out these forms, but do be honest. And um, so going into that, what there are lots of specifics. You can choose and you can say yes to races, genders, sexual orientation, disabilities, um, exposure to drugs, um, history of psychiatric disorders in the family, if there is any, like if they're known, um, religion. I'm trying to think there's another one. Um, oh, I think I said, did I say special needs? Oh, like, and like up and like even specific special needs. Like if a child was born with cleft lip and palate, if they need an NG tube or a naso, it, the tube in their nose that helps them eat when they're little. <laughs> I'm looking at Kieran because I sometimes say acronyms without providing context. Um, if they need any kind of medical help, you can say yes or no to all of these things. And the best advice that we are given that we want to share with anyone who is thinking about doing this is to be more specific when you're starting. And the reason we say that is because if there's anything that makes you feel a little uneasy and you're not really sure, it's better to say there's another home that's better for that child right now. If you feel like you need to get more comfortable and you know you want to kind of feel the system out a little bit first, then be as specific as you possibly can because it's always better to start narrow and then go a little wider as your comfort zone you know, expands rather than to say, oh, I'm in this to take care of kids. I'll take all of the kids. And then you get a child who has heavy medical needs and you have to figure out how to go to work and how to, you know, support them and you want to be with them. But there, there's so many different things that can happen. Um, and there are going to be homes that will take those children and maybe it will be your home. But if you don't feel comfortable with that right now, it's better that you say, there's another home better for that child right now. I know that I can handle this specific situation um, in my current life, and that's okay. <laughs> um, I think that's the best thing to say is, you know, if you say no, that's okay because the hope and goal is that they will have another home for that child. Um, but it's better for you to be specific and not get overwhelmed because what happens is some people will say, oh, I'll take all of the children. Then they get a placement that they can't handle. And what ends up happening is they have to send them back, which that language sounds terrible, but that's the truth. They have to call the state and say, I can't do this. I need you to find this child another home, which is then another removal for the child, which in that is just another layer of trauma for that child. So it's better for you to be specific. It's better for you. It's better for the child. It's better for the state. So they don't have to do all the extra work um, to be as specific as possible and know that there is a family for every child. Yeah. I don't think I would add anything. And I'm, I'm pretty sure, but just in case you didn't, 
um, age would be like oh. age range would be one of the kind of choices that you fill out when you fill out that piece of paper. And that basically just acts as a filter for when the caseworker calls you to say, Hey, we have a place, a potential placement child who needs a home. Um, if you say that you only want ages zero to five, zero to five, then you're not going to be get, getting calls about 16 year olds. And so again, you get to fill that out. Feels very weird. Um, but again, to Dana's point, we want to avoid at all costs adding to the trauma that children in foster care have already experienced. And so I think that's, that answers that question. Um, the, and that also answers the next one, right? Yeah, how specific, yeah. how specific can you be with what you prefer in terms of special needs? Yeah. I think that the person who was asking this, I'm actually not sure, but I think she was asking, can I request that? And you can, you can say, you know, I'm a home that's capable of, um, providing for a child with special needs, that's definitely possible. I'm not sure if they were saying that. If you were saying the opposite and you were saying, um, can we not do that? Um, then yeah, you can say, I'm not willing to take a child with special needs right now, which kind of goes into the next question, which what needs tend to be the highest? I think this, this is different in, um, different situations. So for foster care, what needs are the highest versus adoption? So for foster care, so if you're foster only or foster with the willingness to adopt, sibling groups, I think are the highest needs. Um, they, if they remove a group of siblings, their goal is to keep those kids together. So let's say there's an eight-year-old, a five-year-old, and a three-year-old, and they all needed to be removed from a home. They want to keep those kids together. But if they can't find a home that's willing to take the three of them or it can't fit the three of them, then they have to split them up. So not only are they being removed from their home, they're also being removed from their siblings, which is, you know, we can all just, yeah, we can all just kind of scoff like, oh my gosh, that's really rough. And I almost was able to convince Kieran to do sibling groups in the beginning, but <laughs> we'll get there. We'll get there. Our home will, will be bigger one day. Um, so for, yes, for foster placements, sibling groups, um, teenagers tend to be more difficult to place. Um, kids with special needs and not just special needs as like the general world thinks of special needs as maybe autism or um, Down syndrome or anything like that, but medical needs and also behavioral needs. So these might be some kids who maybe were sexually abused and act out um, in because of that um, and need a lot more care. Maybe they have um, behavioral disabilities or anything of that nature. Those kids tend to need um, their, their higher need as well. And sometimes newborns, which is maybe how we ended up with Christopher, but sometimes people, because people aren't able to stay up all night and take care of babies or they're not willing to do that. So they kind of, you know, if they're fostering, they might want a child who's able to sleep through the night, but, um, not that old. So for foster care, sibling groups, definitely the biggest teenagers, obviously, um, special needs. And additionally, you know, all of the special needs that can come. Um, and then with adoption, uh, older children, if you go to the, I mean, I've been to the New Jersey website. I, don't recommend it unless you are really considering adopting because it's tough. It's really kind of hard. Um, but you'll see a lot of older children on there. And I'm talking older, like even like eight, eight and up. Um, and kids with special needs, um, they typically are more difficult to find places that are willing to adopt them long term. 
The next question is, are there any children in the foster care system that already need to be adopted? Is it possible to foster to adopt only, or do you have to be willing to take any child that needs placement? So I think this was kind of answered already um, in the in our explanation of kind of how the system is broken down. Um, there are some kids who are in the system who need to be adopted. Those kids are legally free. They're parents' rights were terminated, and there's no biological options for them um, for placements. Um, and I think the question, is it possible to foster to adopt only, goes back to, I think that person was asking, can I foster and adopt only, or do I have to be like a foster placement too? And that's kind of answered. You know, you have to be willing to be a foster-only parent and then be open to adopting. Uh, the next question is around having your own biological kids and doing some fostering or adopting. And so the question is basically, do your children, biological children, need to be a certain age, younger or older than a foster child or foster children who enter your home? Um, the basic answer would be no. Like there are no like requirements that you have to have kids around the age of the foster child, although that's just something that people commonly do. Uh, I think people in general don't love the idea of raising a 17-year-old and a newborn, per se. Um, but there is there is a little bit of nuance here in that depending on the physical space that you have and what the state determines as like how much space or how many children you can take in, there are requirements, and this may vary a little bit state by state, but there are requirements around gender and age. And so, for example, you can't, if you have two biological sons who are teenagers and you take in a foster placement who is five years old, uh, who's a girl, they can't share a room. And so there are rules about what uh, what ages and what genders can share rooms. And so that'll just depend on your the physical space that you have, the living arrangements, and things like that. Would you add anything? Yeah, I think as a rule of thumb, um, when we were taking our the class, I don't think I mentioned that in the process to become foster parents. We had to take a class. We took the um, we took the intro class, but I didn't mention how we had to take. We went um, a couple of, like Tuesdays and Thursdays. We took the pride class. I thought that was the class. No, <laughs> I was talking about the intro class where we had to sign the paper that said we're still in. And then we had to take the pride class. So that's that was a couple of weeks of going in the uh, – or I think ours was all day on Saturday for like four Saturdays. Um, it was like a total of maybe 24 hours or something to 30 hours of, of classwork. And in that class, um, they said in general people tend to – like or they prefer to take placements that are around the age of their children just for the sake of – Safety, comfort, and, you know, compatibility. If you have, like Kieran said, I think like teenage sons and you take in a five-year-old girl, that might be a little intimidating. Or if you have um, a three-year-old of your own and you bring in a 13-year-old, that can be a little tricky and um Sometimes you don't know what these children had in their situation. So it depends on your comfort level, whatever you're, you're comfortable with. I know me personally, and we haven't talked about this because we've only had this one placement, but personally, I would like to take around the age of our children and if possible, younger than our children, just for this, for safety reasons. Um, if you, I mean, obviously younger kids can still, you know, do something, but, um, around the age of your children is the suggestion. And they're going to encourage you not to like, don't shove all of your kids in one room so that you can take a foster placement because you don't want your 
biological children, to resent foster children. There's a lot of nuance. It's not so straightforward as, oh, I have an extra bed. I can become a foster parent. You have to kind of consider all of that, I think, yeah. right? It's it's messy. <laughs> it is. like, And I think think people need to know that like, if this is something they're considering, it is foster care. The fact that it exists is a, a sign and a byproduct of brokenness. And so whenever that's the case, we're dealing with human beings, we're dealing with um, flawed people and people with bad experiences and people who have made poor choices or who are put in really bad positions, um, children who are in a position due to no fault of their own most of the time. And it is, it's messy. Foster care is messy. So just know that go in with your eyes wide open. Yeah. I think, uh, just with that being said, before he goes into the next question, um, people always say like, Oh, the system's so broken. Um, and our response is typically, well, it's a broken problem, so it makes sense that it would be a broken system. You know, there's no perfect way to fix this because it's just so messy. Yeah. And if you're looking for your state government to run a really well-oiled machine, <laughs> like a foster care system, like it's just, you're, you're kidding yourself. So, um, yeah, it is a broken system, but there are people, there are children, who are regardless of what people think of the system, there are children who are in it, like the day to day and, and experiencing it. So I won't get on my soapbox. Um, <laughs> next question is around kind of fam extended family members. And so this question is, what if you have legitimately unsafe people in your extended family? Would that disqualify or uh, with certain boundaries, could you still be a foster or adoptive parent? Um, short answer would be no, that would not disqualify you from becoming a foster or adoptive parent. Um, the, in the interview process, they will ask about family members. And so some of this will depend on, well, how close are you? Is it like your parent and are they around a lot? And are they really involved in your life? If that's the case, then that might be or something that needs to be discussed and talked about and boundaries need to be set. If it's kind of a, a distant cousin or an uncle who isn't around much and, um, you hasn't had a, a close relationship with you in your life and it hasn't really affected you, then that's, that's not going to become something that, uh, that would be a deterrence from you becoming a foster or adoptive parent. Yeah. I think the only thing that I would add to that is when we were becoming foster parents, um, they asked, do we have any frequent guests who come and stay? So, or just like frequent guests in general. Um, and at the time we didn't, we didn't really have very many friends. Uh, <laughs> Uh, it's just the, it's the truth. But we did have one of Kieran's college friends who came and whenever he would visit, he would stay over for the weekend um, and he would come a couple of times a year. So shout out to John Hall. I think they background checked him, but um, that's the only um, if it's someone who comes around. So if it's an extended family member who you never see or is in prison or lives on the other side of the country and you have a restraining order against, then that doesn't disqualify you. Next question uh, is for older kids. How do extracurriculars work out? So obviously Christopher is two and a half. So we don't have like firsthand experience um, with older kids. Just from talking to the people that we know who have fostered uh, or adopted older children. My understanding is that it would be as if they were your child. And so they would go to extracurriculars. You would 
pick them up from those extracurriculars um, as if things were normal. The, the thing that I guess isn't necessarily asked in this question, but I think that is at least worth mentioning is again, the goal, the primary goal being reunification with family means that there would potentially and most likely be visits uh, between your foster child and their biological family. And sometimes that's once a week. Sometimes it's multiple times a week. Depends on the case. But in those situations, you are not responsible for uh, transporting and providing transportation for your foster child to get to the place where the visitation is going to happen. That is the state's, that is the government's responsibility. And so they provide rides. Um, you, you will have to coordinate and communicate with them on scheduling and things like that. Um, and Dana wants to add something. Yeah, no, I was just, um, I don't know. I think what, I don't know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm reading this question a little differently, but what, what I'm hearing here is like, how do extracurriculars work out? It's it, let's say like you get a placement for a child or an older child who is in a different town. Um, just like there's busing that's provided. If you can't get the child to their school, the goal is for them to have maintain as much of a normal life as possible. So they're being removed from their home, but if they're in a different town, they're still going to go to the school that they were going to. If they were playing basketball, they're still going to continue to play basketball. And as a foster parent, I would advocate for my child to have their visits after practice, pick them up from practice and take them to their visitation because you want to have them at least be able to be a part of those extracurriculars, keep those things um, running you know, as normal. If you needed help with transportation, you can ask the state for that. You can ask either the child's caseworker, you can talk to your own caseworker, or you can talk to, we're going to get into, you know, there's some jargon here, but every child is also assigned a lawyer and they're not, they're the child's lawyer. They aren't the state's lawyer, they're the child's lawyer. They're called their law guardian. And ideally their goal, their job is to advocate for them. So if you feel like you're not getting the support to get this child to their extracurriculars um, and to make that happen, you can talk to the law guardian and they can kind of step in and also help with that. So the next question that we got is just around where do you even start? How do you become a foster parent? And so hopefully we've given you a sense of what that is, but the basic answer kind of where I would suggest uh, for people to start if this is something that they're interested in is one, um, try to look up if there's an information session either put on by a private organization or by the state to just learn about, depending on which path you want to take, to just learn a little bit more about what that path might look like and if that's a good fit for you and what you're looking to do. Um, my other suggestion would be to talk to, if, if you want to talk to um, foster parents, if you're interested in that, talk to foster parents in your community, talk to people that you know who have adopted, learn about their, their story, the path that they went through and their journey. Um, so an info session uh, with an organization in kind of the domain that you're interested in, and then just talk to people um, and really Obviously, I would involve God in this. And if you feel like this is something that he's nudging you towards or asking you to do, uh, to lean into prayer, um, to lean into your community and ask for other people to kind of pray for and speak into this decision. Uh, it's a big, big decision no matter what, which way you go. Um, so with that, we got a, a set of questions that kind of dig a little bit more into the emotional side of foster care, uh, which it is ripe with emotions. And so we'll, we'll, uh, answer a couple of those and then we'll end with 
that segment called What Not to Say to a Foster Parent. So first uh, question in this section, what were your biggest fears surrounding adoption? And I would lump in foster care and how did you overcome them? I'm going to kick this one over to Dana. Great. I get to start. Um, What were your biggest fears surrounding adoption and how did you overcome them? I think with becoming a foster parent, um, the biggest fear, my biggest fear becoming a foster parent was not reunification, but was having a placement um, and sending them back to a home that I didn't feel was safe um, or was suitable because maybe they checked off the boxes from the state but I had like gut feelings of anything. So I just had worst case scenarios of having to say goodbye to a child and sending them to a place that I didn't necessarily feel super comfortable with. And how did I overcome them was by trusting that God had them in their hands and that he had a plan for them. Truly, that's really the only way that I could overcome that. Um, Surrounding adoption, my biggest fear when it was getting close to it was, is it ever going to happen? That was amazing. Yeah, the big fear is that just that, like, you know, some family member would come out of nowhere and say which that, happens. which happens. And we know people who this has happened to at the last minute. A family member that nobody's ever heard of comes out of nowhere and says that they, they want to take the child in. And it kind of can reset a bunch of things. The state has to look into it and options need to be reevaluated. Um, and so certainly that last minute kind of feeling like the rug was pulled out. From under you, that was a definitely a fear. And I'll be honest, and this is this will get into something we'll get into in uh, at the end. But yeah, a big fear of mine was like taking a child into your home, loving them as your own, uh, providing a home for them, and just bonding with them, and then for them to leave. Like I'll just be real. That is that is just a very honest and real. Like you need to wrestle with that. Like the odds are that that will happen. The friends who we had, who we watched become foster parents um, before we decided to, we, their first placement was reunified with family and it was a great situation. But us, just as friends of this family who had babysat this child before and uh, he was like three months old, we had bonded with him in such a short period of time. And I remember distinctly going to work like the day of the reunification and I'm like getting a little bit choked. Like it was... It was emotional, like, and that was hard for us, and it wasn't even our placement. And so, like, there is a very real, like, emotional cost, and you have to be willing to bear that for the sake of of the child. And so, that was a, a real fear, and still is a still is a fear as we continue to foster um, that that will happen. But in terms of overcoming that, it's it's looking like looking at the brokenness that's there, regardless of whether or not I'm willing to take on the emotional burden. Like, there are still children there, so. Excuse me. Yeah. um, I think the one thing I want to say about that in terms of the emotional risk is there's a if you're looking for resources, there's a really good book called Reframing Foster Care. It's written by Jason Johnson. um, And it kind of just helps you get into perspective the point of foster care and helps you to reframe some of these situations. And so one of the things that um, he talks about, I'm pretty sure it's his in his book is Don't let the fear of them leaving be greater than the fear of them not knowing your love. So that's not exactly the quote, but essentially the point is, is that them feeling the love of your home in the time that they would spend in it is more important than how you're going to feel when they leave. So you're going to, 
you should be heartbroken when they leave because that means that you did it right. That means that you loved them well. And that means that um, they left and that time in their life, they were able to know that there was a trusting, safe adult. Um, and that's so important. And that's more important, arguably, than how you're going to feel when they leave. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Like the way that I think about it, and I highly, highly recommend that book, Reframing Foster Care, is like if you look at there's the child and then there's you uh, and potentially your spouse as the foster parents. And it's like which of those two people, which of those two sets of people have a greater emotional capacity to handle grief and loss and I mean even like the trauma of that child leaving, right? And it would be the foster parents. And so uh, just perspective, food for thought. The next question uh, was interesting. Was anything easier than you expected it to be? You can answer this one first. <laughs> I had trouble coming up with something. I think uh, probably the thing that ended up being easier was that Christopher's case was relatively straightforward. Like there wasn't, I mean, there are certainly emotional ups and downs and lots of waiting over the past two and a half years, but there wasn't the, like, again, we've, we're plugged into the foster care community. We know people's stories who have gone through the ringer. Um, and I think I'd always kind of tried to prepare myself for and expect that. And because that didn't happen, like, in that kind of more extreme way, in our case, uh, it felt, I think this felt a little bit easier than I thought it would be. He also was our first place. And so, again, there were, like, a lot of things that just seemed to happen um, that I wasn't necessarily expecting to happen, let alone the first placement that we took in. Yeah. So my, our, our first ever caseworker would say, yeah, don't expect this <laughs> again. Um, her name was Tara. She would definitely say that. Um, but for me, was anything easier than you thought? Um, I'm going to be honest, uh, loving and caring and wanting the best for his biological parents was easier than I thought. Um, and that might be, that's case specific. Um, but my heart for his mom in particular, um, is, uh, we, it was easier than I thought to love her. So, oh, Kieran's next. <laughs> oh, thanks for, thanks for that. Also, I know we're, this is obviously a longer episode than normal. We're at an hour and 10 ish minutes. We thought this was going to be an hour, but nonetheless, this is important and, and worth the time. So if you're, if you're still with us this far in, thank you for sticking <laughs> with us. And we're, we're coming towards, uh, towards the end of the episode, but, um, yeah, I'm not going to say any more on that. <laughs> the next question was, what was the hardest part for you? And there's kind of a part two that could be even its own question. Was there a lot of misunderstanding or pushback? from your families or was it mostly supportive? Um, I'll answer the second question and maybe you can answer the first one. Um, in terms of misunderstanding or pushback, there was like, the, and it's funny, our both of our dads were talking to each other on the day that we adopted Christopher last week and they were saying, hey, do you remember that conversation that we had when Dana and Kieran first said that they were becoming foster parents? And, you know, Dan and I looked at each other and we, we kind of chuckled a little bit because we know, like, I remember specifically, I remember them talking and you could tell just kind of, I didn't hear the words that they were saying necessarily, but you could tell that 
they had like the concerned dad kind of uh, conversation going on. Like they don't know what they're getting into. Like this is going to be really difficult. Like, I don't know if they should really be doing this. Um, you know, they haven't, you know, all, all of these things They're it's coming from a loving place. They're trying to protect us. But I think, I think our motive, not our motivation, but our decision to go into this, I feel like there was some misunderstanding. I wouldn't go as far as to say it was pushback. I, I remember them asking us like, are you sure that you really want to do this? And, you know, we just had to stand firm and like, yes, like we are sure. We're very confident that this is what we we feel called to do. Um, we're going to do it. So a little bit, but nothing like nothing crazy in terms of pushback. Yeah. And I think in general, the second part of his question was, or mostly supportive. I think it was mostly supportive um, with those loving concern questions, which you would hope any, um, you know, loving parent would provide. There was also the reassurance that they would love any child that we brought into our home. Um, like it was their, like that child was our own, um, even if they didn't know how long they were going to stay. So that's also something to consider. It's if you have people who are really close in your life and people that are kind of going to be around this child a lot or help with caretaking, you need to talk to them about this too, because it's an emotional burden for the entire family. Um, when we were getting close to adopting Christopher, I know my older brother said that if it didn't go through that he would be, um, fleeing the country with Christopher because <laughs> he was so in love with him. So, um, luckily no one is a fugitive here and we, <laughs> Christopher is, um, adopted now, but you know, it's a, it's a burden on everyone in the family. Um, so it's just something to make sure you have open conversations about, um, and that you have ongoing conversations about, I think. What was the hardest part was the first question there. Uh, I, it's gotta be the unknown. It's the, yeah. the unknown is so hard. So like, it's just, I, I was able to put up kind of like a shield I activated to kind of help myself stay numb to like the what ifs, but like you find yourself crying some nights, like what if they took him? Um, and what if he had to go back? Like, what if, you know, there's a last minute, like change in heart by someone or what if something changes and there's just the unknown of what's going to happen. And then also the surrender to there's nothing I can do. So the surrendering aspect is not something that happens once it happens on a regular basis. And I would catch, I mean, I felt like I got into a rhythm of surrender when it would be another court date with, um, no information about adoption. And, you know, I would have friends and family who were up in arms and I'm like, Hey, you know, kind of just rubbing it off, like shrugging it off. Like it is what it is. You know, we'll have another court date next month. Like you kind of just have to roll with the punches a little bit. And that's a big change for me. And I think that um, that was really difficult, just not knowing. Yeah. The unknown, uh, the surrender, like if you want to learn how to depend on God, like start a business and become a foster parent. <laughs> like there, it's just, it's open-ended. There's so many possibilities. Things can change in a moment without any heads up. Um one of the other hard things, and then we'll move on to the next question, is just like there is this tension. There is always going to be this tension between you, like you bond with the child. You love them as if they're your own. You imagine like adoption day. We, I have cried a lot, many times 
imagining that day and just trying to like imagining what that would feel like and and what life could look like with Christopher as part of our family forever. And to hold that in one hand and then in the other hand hold uh, a love and desire for his parents to turn their lives around, um, to do the things that it would take to uh, be able to support and to care for and love a child. Like at the same time, we want to adopt this child and be his parents forever. And in the same moment, we are want like we don't want to be rooting for the failure of other parents to be able to to be parents to their children. And so there is this like it's a t- emotional tug of war, constant. That's constant. Um, but in that, I think there's just something like God is is still and will continue to kind of work things out in us um, to increase our love for uh, biological family of the children that we foster. Um, but that is, that is certainly a difficult thing. And it was, I know at first for me, it was just really hard to kind of wrestle with that and reconcile those two things. Um, but that is, that is part of, of the process. The next question, uh, how do you prepare for reunification? Uh, I'll let you know when that (laughs) That happens. happens Um, yeah, it's honestly, it's a little bit hard to, answer this question without having had the experience because i can say what i would imagine we would do to prepare for it the only thing that i can think of is to just constantly be telling myself and recognizing that it could like that could be what happens and that it's okay and that the time that we've had like dana was saying the time that we've had this child and cared for them is is leaving a lasting impact that will Give this child the ability to trust an adult to uh, to know that there are loving people out there. Anything you would add? Um, yeah. So I recently started following someone on Instagram, um, and her Instagram handle was praying for reunification. It's just this woman who um, ha- had her two boys removed from her, and they were actually just reunified on um, July 1st, which was like really awesome to see. Um, one, I think it's important to remember that um, – We want to see those stories and we want to see people advocating for reunification. Um, There's obviously situations where it's not appropriate and there are situations where it really is. And, you know, part of the brokenness of the system is kind of like the checkbox of, you know, if you do this, then it's okay. But if you don't do this, then it's not. But, you know, people are people and they're, they're dynamic and they need, some people might need certain things and some people might need other things in order for them to heal and um, kind of turn their lives around and be able to provide safe and loving homes for their kids. But um, all this to say, as reunification was getting closer and closer, I was following the biological mom and she was sharing how much she appreciated the foster mom who was saying, hey, do you want to come to daycare today to pick up, you know, Johnny from daycare so you can see who his friends are and meet his teacher and do these things. Hey, you know, we're starting to talk about, um, you know, going home with the boys and do you want to do this in order to prepare for it? And foster mom was actively working with her to make sure that she was setting her up for success. So I think for preparing for reunification emotionally, there's some things that you need to kind of burden as the adult in the situation. But then functionally, if you really love this child. And, you know, it's, if you're, if it's going to be so emotionally difficult that you're kind of like preparing for that, you also want to 
make sure you're helping in every way possible to make sure that the reunification is successful and that child is safe and you know that child is loved and you know, you know, they talk about in foster care, you have the option of, or when it comes to adoption, you know, we have the option for how much we want to communicate with Christopher's biological family or how much we don't. They encourage communication. So we, from the get go, we have been like very, like a lot of communication back and forth, um, sharing lots of information. And that started from the beginning because I knew from the very beginning, I wanted his biological parents to trust me so that if, and when they ever needed help, they would be able to reach back out and I could help with Christopher and they would know that I was a safe place. So I wanted them to know that I was rooting for them. I wanted them to know that I supported them and I wanted I personally, selfishly, wanted to make sure that I was doing everything possible for Christopher to have success in the long run if reunification was possible. So that started from early on. Um, but as reunification gets closer, working with biological families, um, advocating, continuing to advocate for the child, but also just trying to do everything you can to help them prepare so that they will be successful. And I think that's a really helpful way to think about it. Yeah, and I'll just add on briefly to what Daniel was talking about. And I think this is, you know, children are obviously the focus of the foster mm-hmm. care system. Um, but when we when we stepped into this, and again, we had really great models and examples of this uh, in our friends, we didn't just want to get into this for the children and the impact that we could have. We recognized that the fact that the children are in foster care means that there's brokenness being experienced in the lives of their parents and they are people too. And they are children. They're made in the image of God too. And they are people to be loved. And so again, like when it's safe and when it's appropriate um, as much as possible, like we want to have relationships with the bio, with biological parents of any children that we foster Um they are people that we like, we don't want to just like shut the door to them. They're people to be loved. They're people who can be redeemed. They're people who can experience transformation. And, and we want to, to aid in that, uh, in any way that we possibly can. And so if this is something you're considering and are interested in, just want to plant that seed that yes, like the children are at the heart of the system, but there are also parents who have, they themselves experienced trauma likely and brokenness and um they they need to be loved too and so with that the last question that uh, i actually think this one's pretty straightforward mm-hmm. um that we'll ask and then we'll just start to wrap up with uh, the last brief segment and then close out uh, last question here is would you foster if you knew adoption wasn't a possible outcome i don't know karen would you yes me too <laughs> yeah, so we'll <laughs> we'll kind of leave that um, there. We we knew that we might never adopt out of the foster care system, um, but are we are and will continue to be open to fostering. So I wanna I wanted to wrap up the episode on a little bit of a light note, but also kind of serious um, in a segment called "What Not to Say to a Foster Parent." So there are just a couple of things that we've heard over and over again, and this isn't like a universal rule that you should never say this. Maybe this is just our opinions and our experience. Also, if you have said these things, it's okay. Yeah. We still, <laughs> we're not mad at you. It's just, 
Yeah, we'll just, we'll explain them. So, um, especially for us, because we did not have any biological children before we fostered, we had a bunch of people make comments about how, oh, like this is, this will be great practice for when you have kids. I legitimately, someone said that to me. They said, oh, so you wanted to practice before you had your own kids? And I was like, you mean like, what? What? Yeah, this is by no means practice for anything. This is real. (laughs) I'm up every night. (laughs) It's real life. Um, Yeah, I don't don't know that there's much more to say on that. But like, you don't want to say that if somebody is in a similar situation or even if they have biological children. Like this... These are children. They're not practice. Like mm. they are kids to be loved. It's not an experiment. Yeah, it's not an experiment. Um, and if if that's the way that you would want to approach, which I don't think anybody listening to this would, um, but that is not the way that you want to approach becoming a foster parent. Uh, the second thing, and we kind of Dana talked about this a little bit, um, and this one I don't feel as strongly as like, oh, never say this, but I just want before you say this to somebody to just think for a second extra. Um, and this is a phrase that we, this is probably the most common phrase we ever heard is, oh, I could, I would love to, but I could never do that. I would get too attached. And, you know, as Dan and I have talked about that kind of response or that thing that people have said, there's a couple things going on there. One, it almost feels like sometimes when people learn that we're foster parents, that they get a little bit defensive and feel like they need to like justify or provide a reason as to why they aren't foster parents, which is like, again, not everybody's call to this. This isn't for everybody. I don't recommend that everybody does this. Um, but the whole point of being a foster parent is forming attachment. Is forming attachment. Like that is a really critical part of the development of a child. Like their ability to attach to an adult, to have a loving relationship, to be able to trust. Like that is very important. Um, and so again, back to the quote that Dana shared, uh, or that idea that Dana shared of, you don't want your, you don't want to let necessarily your, what was it? Um, don't let the fear of them leaving be greater than the fear of them not knowing your love. And so again, I don't think this is like blast, like terrible. If you say this, I just want you to think about it. Um, that attachment is actually largely the point. And you also, like, you don't need to defend yourself. Like, I'm not trying to, like, convince everybody to, out there to be become a foster parent. Um, I think Kieran touched on that pretty well. Like, I, it, <laughs> definitely the, there's a sense of, like, feeling like people need to defend themselves. Um, I, you know, I tell Kieran, I'm like, whenever I say that I'm a vegetarian, some people are like, oh, yeah, I'm trying to eat less meat. It's like, why, like, why is that a natural response of people? Like, it's okay. Like, I do, I do me. Like, it's okay. Um, I'm not trying to, like, convince you of anything. Um, but yeah, the biggest point is I get too attached. Um, that's what, like, that's the goal. We really, we want kids to know love. And the, I, the one thing that I did want to add to that is it's not just um, young children that need to form those attachments. I don't know if anyone's taken like psychology 101, there's like the different hierarchy of needs, right? There's all these different theories of child development. But if you don't meet one of those, some of those lower basic needs, the rest of them can't fully develop. And you also like can go back and meet those at any point in your life. So like as an adult, you can like go back and learn 
from my understanding, you know, there, there may be some brokenness in your life and some like, you know, maladaptive like patterns or behaviors because of it. But, um, even teenagers, like kids in their twenties, like these people, like people need to know that they can attach and they need to know that they can be safe and they need to know that they can be loved. And that comes from feeling that from an adult. And then, I mean, I don't know if you want to touch on this one. I personally, it's just like a, I just like, it's like cringy to me. But if someone says gotcha day, I just don't like that. I don't know what it would. <laughs> yeah, it's just, I guess it's, I didn't know that it was a thing until we adopted Christopher and, and some people said it. Um, but gotcha day referring to like the day that you got the child, I guess. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. It just feels, doesn't feel great. Feel it feels like class. it has a, not the best connotation like we, Again, like there is, there is celebration. Um, and I, I'd sent an email out to my clients and, and just my email list about this. There is celebration of the adoption and Christopher becoming part of our family forever. Simultaneously, there is grief. Um, because that is like, there is a loss. Like there is a family that is no, a bi- biological family that is no longer together. And like that is something to be grieved. And so, um, it, again, weird tension to like hold celebration, but also grief at the same time. The last thing that I will say, um, what not to say to a foster parent or just like what, even if you are a foster parent, what not to do anything, anything that has to do with bashing, uh, the biological parents or the biological family of the foster child, especially obviously in front of the child, but even even behind, like when you're talking to people, um, something that I tried to be very cognizant of is again, like using words to, to build up or to at the very least, just like, don't say anything negative. Um, the biological parents, people to be loved. They, 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 we don't need to badmouth them. We don't need to criticize them for the decisions that they're making for what they're going through. Um, and I think doing like saying those things to other people who are like asking about foster care, it just creates animosity towards people that need like the most love. Um, and so I would just say, you know, people, I think, try to kind of say like, oh, like that's such a bummer, blah, blah, blah. Like these, they're like not, they're not doing well. They're, and we had to. They're not t- doing enough. They don't care enough. Right. They don't care enough. And and all of these things and just, you know, making some assumptions about the position that they're in. And as we talk about all the time on the podcast, the language that we use to speak to ourselves internally, and then also the language that we use to speak to other people, that can actually shape your heart posture, that can shape your mindset and your disposition towards people, uh, towards your business. But in this, in this case, towards the biological family of a placement that you have, a child that you have in your home. And so it can, it can even like, you know, addressing, going back to some of those other questions, what are the hardest parts? Like, how do you prepare for reunification? Um, the emotional burden of it, it can help with that when you can see the biological, like parents or even by like any of the biological family coming from that loving perspective. Um, and the, you know, God's God lens, um, and seeing them as children of God who are loved and lost and broken and just need love. Like go into it and just try to find the tiniest pieces of promise and potential in them and and focus on that uh, because it's there. And I think that's that's gonna put us in the best position to be able to love them. So 
that is the end of this episode. Um, if you have additional questions, please reach out to myself, Kieran Linehan Coaching on Instagram, or Dana, I will tag her. And I'll put a link to her Instagram in the show notes as well. That We just try to do kind of a flyover, high-level overview, get into some detail, um, but we're happy to talk to anybody who has more questions, happy to connect you to other people or resources if you're considering a path that's different than the one that we've taken so far. But I just wanted to say, one, thank you for all the people who've kind of been celebrating along with us in the adoption of Christopher. Thank you for people who've submitted questions, for people who are considering uh, any of the paths that we've talked about today. And thank you for just spending this time with us. I know that your time is valuable. And this is a lot of it. This was a lot of it. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's funny how we say this was a flyover episode and we're an hour and a half in. Well, like we said, there's it's a lot more involved than just making a decision. There's a yeah. lot. Yeah. Our info session was probably about an hour, so we're, <laughs> we're not doing too bad. But um, that is all for this episode. Next week on the Renew Your Mind podcast, we will get a, be getting back to business, literally. Um, and we'll be talking about some really exciting things coming up for the mastermind that I'll be launching, as well as just some other content geared towards faith-driven entrepreneurs. And so... If you are here for this episode, just for this episode, welcome. Thank you for spending this time. Feel free to stick around. Don't have to. Uh, But thank you to everybody again for the questions and for celebrating with us. I will talk to you. Oh, thank you so much, Dana, for (laughs) gracing us with your presence on your pocket. She's standing next to me, like pointing at herself, like, what about me? Are you going to thank me? Well, I think the audience (laughs) would say, like, can we thank the guest for coming on? (laughs) Oh, that's fair. I haven't had a ton of experience with that. So um, thank you, Dana, for for sharing your perspective and your heart for foster care. This has been a fun journey to be on with you, and I look forward to more years of fostering. With that, finally, have a great rest of your week, and I will see you and talk to you next time on the Renew Your Mind podcast. Bye, guys. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye.